Intelligent, sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I don't think it's too much to ask for guns, Second Amendment right, and sense with it. We just, we can't, we have to stop pretending that the, that the Second Amendment is the amendment above all that's sacrosanct. Well, we will certainly pursue uh, sensible gun control legislation as one of our priorities. You know, we're having, we're getting to the point now where we're having mass shootings every week. It, it's, it's not even, it's hardly news. We're also seeing solidly red states like Utah, Idaho, and Nebraska vote in favor of Medicaid expansion, which indicates that people want more health care, not less. And I strongly believe as a physician that health care has to be a fundamental human right and that women's health care is health care. Illegal immigrant was released from uh, Middlesex County there and came right here to the Midwest, right here in southwest Missouri, and killed three people. And that's just another classic case where we could have uh, saved three lives and, and we have three people, three innocent people that are no longer here because um, sanctuary cities and, and sanctuary counties. And now, Stacy Washington. Welcome. Welcome to the program. Stacy Washington, co-chair of National Center's Project 21 National Advisory Council. I'm also the host of this program and so much more we have going on today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, please share the show. If you are live streaming us on one of our different live streams that we have going on on YouTube or Periscope or Facebook, share the show. Let people know what you're enjoying so they can enjoy it too. And welcome into our listeners across the country on all of our terrestrial radio stations. Thank you so much for being with us. I want to remind you that this is collection week for Operation Christmas Child. It's uh October 22nd to November 11th. This is collection week. So you can go to SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC, SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC, and find a collection site, one of the 5,000 that's located really close to you, no matter where you are in the country. There's a site near you where you can drop off your donations or your box or drop off a donation to help get those boxes where they're going to go and partner with us. Thank you so much for your uh, ears and, and for helping with that for Christmas, Operation Christmas Child. So today on the program, we're going to be speaking to Carol Markowitz. She's a columnist for the New York Post, and the subject is going to be the mob, uh, specifically the mob that attacked Tucker Carlson's home, but also um, he, he's actually been experiencing attacks on his children and his family in, in public and private spaces, and so we're going to talk about that with Carol. She's been on the program before. We really enjoy her time here, and then we're going to get into this new Planned Parenthood uh, president. She's new. She's taking over from Cecile Richardson, and she's very enthusiastic about the business of aborting babies. And she has a lot to say about what she calls health care. She calls it health care, not women's health care, but simply health care. And her concern that this Supreme Court with the two newly installed Supreme Court justices, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, would overturn Roe v. Wade. So we'll be discussing that and a new study that's out that shows that Christian women uh, are actually a significant portion of the number of women who are having abortions in this country and what that means for the messaging that the church is putting out and the gospel and all of that. Super important conversation. We'll be taking your calls during that segment as well. Uh, you can call in and join the conversation at 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. So let's get into our daily confession. Today, we're going to talk about Philippians 1.9, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So we've got to uh, 
We've got to be praying for each other. And I want to also share with you 2 Corinthians 1, 11, as you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So this is about interceding for others. It's about praying for people. And if you're anything like me, you've got people who've annoyed you or maybe, you know, whatever, whatever the case might be, the, the details are inconsequential. And what you want to do is... um you want to be angry or you want to hold on to it. But instead, what you can do is intercede on their behalf. And this this can be for a specific person or it can be for cities interceding on behalf of your city. If you live in a place like we do here in St. Louis, where we have a lot of really ingrained systemic problems that aren't easily fixed, then we go to the Lord in prayer. We pray over this city. We pray for unity among the churches, pray for um, many people who do not know the Lord to come to know him in a real and true way, really to know the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and for their lives to be changed by it, the direction of their lives to be shifted in a major way that is unmistakably the work of the cross and things like that. So people that you pray for, have a hard time being angry with people that you pray for. You have you you can't pray for someone and hate them at the same time. But if it's not hate or anger, if it's just a simple kind of ambivalence, praying for uh, groups of people, cities, neighborhoods, churches, specific people, it can soften your heart towards them and bring us into the true knowledge of what God has for us to do as the hands and feet of Christ. We are to pray for each other and to lift each other up in prayer. And so I have uh, just the utmost faith in an intercessory prayer and what it can do for us. It's, it's kind of a selfish thing. You're praying for others, knowing that God is going to bless you for it. So I want to give you a couple of more scripture references. Psalm one nineteen sixty six says, teach me good judgment and knowledge for I believe in your commandments. And God commands us to pray for each other, especially in the body of Christ, where we have so many needs and God is constantly moving. We can see someone in need and pray for them and intercede on their behalf, knowing that God will answer our prayers and will bless them as well. Colossians 1.9 says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Woo! I want people to pray for me like that. All right, so that's the daily confession for today. Now I want to talk about something awesome. I love it when I have good news to share. And this is the kind of good news that a lot of people will discount because they really feel like, you know, the more government, the better. But I'm here to tell you, we know from firsthand accounts, we know from statistics, we know from the research and deep dives that anthropologists do into the lives of Americans, that being connected to the government for your subsistence, for your very basic needs, is a drag on not just you as an individual, but on your whole family. And it can really seriously impede your ability to plug into and take advantage of the American dream. And remember, if illegal immigrants are coming here from far and wide, hither and yon, and coming into this country and starting businesses and working under the table and making themselves a part of the American dream, how much more so should you be able to do it if you are an American citizen already and you don't have the encumberment of not being here legally? How much more should we be able to take advantage of the economy when we can work not under the table, but right right over the top of the table, we can work legitimately. So it's it's a lie from the pit of hell that any group of people can't make it in this country. It's individual choice that determines what we can do. And that's why this is such good news. It's food stamp recipients down 4,123,082 people less under President Trump. Now think about what we're saying here. 
if you're receiving food stamps, that means you're living at or below the poverty level and you're getting a certain amount of money allocated to you based on your family size with which you can take that card and access that money to buy food. So you're at the very, you're the the primary target for government programs. And if you're accessing that, you're probably having a few other programs that are being offered to you and you're, you're accessing those as well to help you get over the, the basic, just your basic needs. CNSnews.com is reporting that the number of persons and households participating in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, what we all call, you know, in, in parlance, food stamps, which is the SNAP program, has declined by over 4 million people since December of 2016. This is according to newly released data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture as the food stamp program comes underneath the Farm Bill and the Ag Department. So, You've got the last full month that President Barack Obama was in office, there were almost 43 million people on food stamps, according to USDA. As of August of 2018, that number is at 38.8 million. That's a significant drop. The last time food stamp participation was lower than it is this August was nine years ago in November of 2009, when it was just shy of that, about 700,000 less than what it is now. In December of 2009, it rose to about 100,000 more than it is now and had not dropped below that level until July of this year. Now, the number of persons on food stamps peaked in December of 2012 at 47.7 million. And since that peak, the number of persons on food stamps has dropped by almost 9 million people. Now, to give you a, a idea of the scope that we're talking about here, the number fewer that we have right now, 4.1 million is less than the population of Missouri by about a million. But that high number where we've dropped from that high of 47.7 million by 8.9 million, that is a significant number of Americans who are no longer relying on the government to eat. That also means, because you have to, it's not just, hey, I need to make an extra $300 more a month so I don't need government food stamps. When they take those away, then you're also absorbing the cost of not having the food stamp money, but you've got the raise and you have an increase in how much income tax you owe. So your federal withholding. So when people are coming off of food stamps, they have significantly improved their income and their work. Everything in their life has improved significantly for them to say, you know what? I don't need this anymore. I feel strong enough to make it without this, not just without it, but and having it reduced, but completely off of the food stamp program. Now, A lot of uh, Democrats are out talking right now, talking about their so-called blue wave. There's this I was on Al Sharpton's show, my my one and only hit on MSNBC, my first and probably the last time I'll ever be on their network, which was Sunday. I went on Al Sharpton's Politics Nation and he called it a blue wave. Now, you know, if numbers don't matter to you, you can call anything anything that you want. If, if you don't believe in statistics and charts and graphs and that math is math and that it's a language, it's not something that's subjective to our, our interpretation, then sure, the Democrats had a blue wave. But if you're living in, you know, upside up land, in, in, in other words, you believe that words have meaning, they didn't have a blue wave. And on top of not having a blue wave, they now have to watch as President Trump fills the remainder of the Supreme Court openings that are going to appear before the end of his first term and He's going to continue to pack the courts with constitutional textualist judges who do not believe the Constitution is a living, breathing document. So, of course, the Democrats have said they want to help out with uh, 
pre-existing conditions and lower the cost of drugs. But simultaneously, they want to launch investigations into everything that what the president eats, what time he goes to bed at night, his tax returns and any individual that has taken a role in government that they don't like. They're going to try to investigate those individuals. Now, they do have uh, power over the purse. They have oversight. And we watched as the last time they took control, they were very, very heavy handed and strong about making sure that they got what needed to be done to ensure the reelection of Barack Obama. They're now going to take that same fervor and they're going to work their their little fingers to the bone to make sure that they can ensure the election of a Democrat in 2020. A woman will be the vice presidential candidate and the man will be Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. That's just what I see. Now, I could be wrong. Hey, I don't know. But that's 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 what I'm. That's what my research tells me, that they're going to go with someone that is uh, able to withstand the onslaught that is President Trump in campaign mode. Now, let's let's hearken back just a minute here, OK, because when when today's show is Dem House agenda, the Democrats House agenda, it's extreme violence with prejudice. And they have already normalized violence. It started with Occupy Wall Street. It was cemented with Ferguson and Baltimore and the inner city burnings that happened with Black, Black Lives Matter. Now we have the institutionalization of that violence because the people who are directing it are now members of government and the elite. You have Maxine Waters. You have others in the very top echelons of the Democratic Party saying, you know, it is too much for us. You have Hillary Clinton saying we'll be civil when we're in charge. All of these individuals, Eric Holder, when when they go low, kick them. Not kick them in the shins. He didn't say kick them in the shins. He said kick them. This is their new rallying cry. We're not in charge. We don't have power. And so we're going to be violent. We're going to run you out of restaurants. We're going to chase you out of gas stations. We're going to chase you down the street. If we see your child in a country club, we're going to call her names you can't say on TV and radio. And we're going to make her cry. We're going to make her leave the country club. And then when you come over and you confront us about it, we're going to say you assaulted us. That's one of the stories we'll be discussing with Carol Markowitz in the next segment. Tucker Carlson's family is under a full-blown assault. And this is by Antifa and their different arms. They call themselves, uh, you know, Smash Racism DC and all these other cute little names they've made up so they can make T-shirts. But they are all the militaristic wing of the Democrats, which is Antifa. And I I see it often, and I'll just say this as an aside before I get back to these details. Well, there's the music. If you in your heart think there's some justification for public figures to have their children attacked in public, you have bigger problems than I can help you with on a radio show. That's wrong. We'll get into that and more with Carol Markowitz after these messages. You stay right there. Stacey on the right. Len Ingram of Redeem Clean felt God call him to support the American Family Association. I'm a laundryman. I'm the son of a laundryman, too. I love clean clothes. I love the business. I love everything about it. This project was built exclusively to support AFA and AFR. There's no strings attached. Another thing that I would like to see come out of this is that I would like to see other business people feel a calling to support ministries wherever and whatever they do to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. In addition to your regular AFA giving, Redeem Clean Laundry Detergent allows you to increase your support of AFA just by continuing to wash your family's clothes. For clean laundry and support of a cleaner society, it's Redeem Clean. 
Learn more, find options, and get Redeem Clean products at redeemclean.afastore.net. That's redeemclean.afastore.net. Hi, I'm Crawford Loretz with a Legacy Moment. Some time ago, I attended a funeral where my friend Michael Easley gave the message. His words were deeply moving. He honed in on the purpose and meaning of life and stressed that one day, life as we know it would come to an end. He compared this life to a tent that is only temporary. His words challenged all of us not to waste our lives. Funerals are great opportunities to get us to think about what is really important in life. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2 and verse 4 speak to this whole issue of death as an instrument of wisdom. Listen to these words. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Now verse 4. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Let me make three observations about these two verses. One is that death puts us in touch with reality. Death is like cold water splashed on our face. Secondly, death magnifies the need for purpose and meaning. When you go to a funeral, you're struck with reality. Did this person live a meaningful, purposeful life, or did they just kind of throw it away? Number three, Fools are passionate about meaningless pursuits. That is what the text says. The mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Here's what I want you to remember and maybe even think about today. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, how would you live today? We should not live our lives with a sense of gloom, but we should live our lives wisely pursuing God's purposes and plans. Crawford Loritz is senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. For more information, go to livingalegacy.org, livingalegacy.org. Legacy Moment is a production of Moody Radio. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Did you miss me on Making Money with Charles Payne on Fox Business just a little bit ago? Well, you can catch that on the Roku channel for Fox Business. You can catch all the clips of their frequent guests. Uh, they had me on to talk about the prison reform package that is currently under bipartisan consideration. And it would it's called the First Step Act. And we've actually had guests on the program to talk about it. And I have actually become a convert to at least the idea that we have to look at ways to reduce recidivism, and then it's time to take a second look at that. I understand that there's some concern from law enforcement that we uh, you know, don't, don't want to encourage violent offenders to reoffend, and I certainly am not in that category as a supporter of law enforcement because my father is in law enforcement. I certainly don't want to give off that impression, but we do need to, regardless of political party, Consider the fact that when someone makes a mistake like that, especially for these first-time offenders who are not violent offenders, these individuals need an opportunity uh, to become functioning members of society again. And whatever we can do to incentivize that should be a priority for us as a country uh, looking after our citizens, even the ones who've made these kinds of mistakes. So right now, it's my pleasure to welcome frequent guests on the program. We haven't spoken to her in a bit, but this is going to be great to catch up. Carol Markowitz, she's a columnist for the New York Post. Carol, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Stacey. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. I, I'm actually, this is the subject that you're bringing today. I have been so concerned about this. And not because Tucker Carlson is some, you know, wallflower who can't care for himself, 
But I was really appalled by the story where the mob actually comes to his home under the guise of protest and they vandalized right. his home, cracked the front door, um, you know, vandalized the vehicles in the driveway, the driveway itself and the exterior of the home and frightened his wife, who was locked in a pantry, dialing 911. Uh, talk to us about your piece on this. You wrote a really good piece about this story. Yeah, I think it's um, a, it's a terrible thing that happened to the Carlson family. And beyond that, I think it's a real threat to our freedom of speech. Um, freedom of speech specifically is speech that is not threatened by violence. And the state's role is to protect us from people who would cause us violence because of our speech. Um, so here we have, you know, an example of a mob trying to shut Tucker Carlson's speech down. And we need to all stand up and say that this is unacceptable. So uh, there was, we're, I, I just want to make sure people understand, this isn't about them being out in, in public someplace and protesters confronting right. them in public. This is their actual private residence in a residential right. neighborhood. Is it in D.C. or is it in Maryland? I was kind of unsure in the story. Yeah, I think, I think it's Maryland um, okay. that they live and, you know, that's exactly the point to me. Um, we've had Fox talk show hosts like Brian Comede got um, harassed on the subway. And, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I think all of that is atrocious, but I, that it's, it's a different universe from coming to somebody's house and threatening their wife and um, scaring their family. I mean, thankfully, his four kids weren't home at the time, but it's just a different level of abuse. And I think it's, again, one that we absolutely can't stand for, you know, Screaming something at somebody on the subway is one thing. Um, attacking their private home is something else entirely. It is. But I, I just I want to point out that what happened to Brian Kilmeade was two individuals who have a Netflix show actually mm-hmm. tried to incite a mob against Brian Kilmeade and he was alone. So, I mean, right, right. I, I, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's certainly, and, and you, you described it correctly. It's horrific. It's, it's awful, mm-hmm. but it still doesn't rise to the level of the person's spouse and possibly the kids. Luckily in this chance that in this instance, the children weren't there, but you've got the wife right. home alone, right? She hears yeah. what sounds like a home invasion. The door is mm-hmm. being you right. know, rammed and it cracks. She locks herself in the pantry and dials 911. Now, it's, it's actually Mis- amazing that they didn't consider that Tucker might be home and have a weapon and use that weapon on somebody that they, he thinks is dating his home. But, you know, it's, it's, I, it's not so, a crazy possibility. It's amazing. No, it's not. It. It's not. And, and I know you're you're in New York, correct? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're I'm, I'm broadcasting from Missouri. Not only is our yeah. state a castle doctrine state, but we also have stand your ground. So. Right. I, I don't have to have two feet in the door anymore. Like the rule before we had um, the stand your ground law was the person had to have two feet in the door and you had to believe your yeah. life was in danger and then you can defend mm-hmm. yourself. You don't no longer have to retreat to the farthest right. room in your home and hide before confronting the individual. All they have to do is be in the house and yeah. all bets are off. So that's I castle think doctrine. Biden, Biden who actually recommended shooting through doors if you feel threatened. I mean, <laughs> well, he said, you know. <laughs> get on your front porch and fire a gun into the air, which is absolutely not legal. Even if you have castle doctrine, <laughs> you're not allowed to discharge right, right. a weapon. You know, you have to actually shoot it in the belief that you're defending yourself. Yeah. But in the right. stand your ground state, 
The fact that they were in the driveway defacing property and had attempted to enter the home by battering the door would be enough for her to defend herself. So, I mean, there, there's yes, very absolutely. serious ramifications here. Carol, I'm I'm not I'm not suggesting anything. I certainly no, don't want to see I, people hurt. They should worry about about that kind of behavior and not expect that nothing will happen to them. They're they're they're, you know, possibly in danger themselves. And they don't even seem to realize it. But why wasn't anyone arrested? The story is that after right. they've done all of this damage, they've cracked the door. Mm-hmm. The police arrive and disperse the crowd. I can't imagine that happening here in Missouri. Everyone there would have been arrested. Right. I, you know, I don't know what would happen in New York. I don't have extremely high hopes for what would happen here. Um, but, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, again, it's, it's an invasion of private property as soon as they were on their grounds. I think it's taking it way too far, and they should have been arrested. So at this point... We're like we're talking about this as this has already happened. I don't know if you saw there's the the latest story, which Tucker Carlson actually tried to keep, you know, private is that he and his family. I don't know if it was all of the kids, but it was certainly one of his sons and one of his daughters were at their country club and a Latino man who they did not know confronted the Mm -hmm. daughter as she left the restroom and began to verbally accost her with profanity. She went back to the table and her brother and father approached the man, and Tucker Carlson has now you know, publicly stated that it took everything within him not to beat the man with a chair because of what he said to his daughter, yeah. which I can't I repeat mean, that's, here that's on the radio. Real, um, you know, the fact that he was able to contain himself is impressive. Yeah, but what, what are we like, what is, what is the impetus for yelling and profaning the, the daughter of the person right. that holds the views that you don't oh, like? Yeah. Why, why are we yeah. going there? Right. It, it's so. Um, below the belt. And again, I, I don't think that people can do that and not expect some sort of reaction. Um, I think another example recently, well, first of all, that story is being pushed by Michael Avenetti. And as we know, you know, he, he really cannot be trusted after um, the insane stories he pushed against Brett Kavanaugh. So I, I think everybody should be taking that tale with a, a giant grain of salt. I mean, one of the things he says in, in, in the story about Tucker Carlson at the country club is that uh, Tucker was intoxicated, and apparently Tucker is a well-known, um, you know, teetotaler. He does not drink, so uh, <laughs> right. yeah, it's already <laughs> something of a of, of a mistake in his story. But you know, another recent story was Cat Timp, um, who's also from Fox News, was at a bar in Brooklyn and was harassed out of it. This was a few days ago. This happened, over, I think, over this weekend, mm-hmm. and nobody came to her defense. And um, this woman started screaming at her and. You know, one thing that Kat said was, name one thing I've said that you disagree with. Kat is not an extremist. She does not say crazy things. She is not, she's a very sort of moderate person. So Mm. what did these people have against her? And it it really is just her place of employment. And it just shows how absolutely, you know, insane this whole thing has become that they can't point to anything that she said that would be controversial even. You know, the cat temp story to me was disturbing because um, I always consider, you know, so if if you're a woman and you're out and she couldn't even make it back to her table to let the people she was there with know that she was going to leave. The woman literally screamed her out of the bar. Mm -hmm. But she's a, you know, a tiny woman. So, yeah, I I always think of, you know, um, the times that liberals have, you know, jabbed their finger in my face and I'm very tall. I'm six feet, two inches tall. Mm-hmm. So when I have shoes on, I'm six, four and I've had short liberals. I mean, really short ones 
reach up and right. jab their finger in my face violently, like poking, coming within you know, like mm-hmm. literally less than inches from my face. And when I've told them to get away from me or to back down, they look surprised. Like, you know, what, what do you mean I need to back away from you? What do you mean we can't keep debating this? I'm like, it's not a debate. Your hands are in my face. Back right. up. And then they then yeah. it's like, oh, well, she she doesn't want to talk to me anymore. I'm like, you have to get out of my personal space because mm-hmm. I feel threatened. And then they then they raise their eyebrows. I'm not threatening you. I'm like, move your body away from my body. And then right. then they Absolutely. become much more calm. But it's it's as if in those moments they lose all ability mm-hmm. to kind of judge their behavior as being it's frightening to me. I, I yeah. find it frightening and anytime anyone's yelling or losing control of themselves, yeah. if their if their emotions are running high, I always right. feel as if there's it's a situation that could become very volatile and I want to exit it or at least minimum get away from that person because you don't know what yeah. they're going to do. What Absolutely, is what is right. that with grown ups? Yeah. yeah, they're well educated. What is going on here? Yeah, you know, I, I also, the fact that nobody in the bar stood up for her is just so shocking to me. I, I mean, I cannot imagine my husband, my brother, hell, my five-year-old son letting that kind of thing go on. You know, I, <laughs> I, I really can't imagine a situation where somebody's screaming at a woman and none of us do anything about it. Even if, you know, no matter what side, no matter what the story is, um, somebody berating a woman in a bar is going to have somebody, stand, should have somebody stand up for her. And the fact that nobody did is really pathetic. It is pathetic as I I'm I remember my son standing up for little girls on the playground when he was five and he's the right. same way now. I, I can't I would not sit by in a restaurant yeah. and watch someone get screamed at by someone else without dialing 911 and getting up and going over and trying to break it up. I can't imagine yeah, I, and especially totally someone agree. who's really yeah. tiny. Right. Like I just don't. So we're do you do you see this because I, I I personally Carol I'm of the belief that what we're seeing is only going to escalate because the police are not arresting these people, because bystanders aren't standing up, that we're going to see more of this behavior, especially after the Democrats take over the House and start to really spread these people out and encourage them in all areas of the country to kind of act up and act out against who they see as being on the wrong side. Right. Well, look, I'm fully anti-violence. I think that, you know, um, speech is speech. And if somebody is like, screaming at me as long as they don't put their hands on me. I think, we, you know, it, it, there's, there's no need for a violent response. But again, these people have to imagine that everybody thinks like me, and that's just not the case. I think at some point, somebody's going to get clocked, somebody's going to get hurt, somebody's going to get shot, and they're going to have to really rethink their, their yelling in people's faces and confronting them in restaurants and coming to their homes. I think they're, they're setting up a very dangerous situation, and I think they really need to be aware of that. It's, it's not going to, you know, again, I... My, my thinking where if somebody's screaming at me and I won't hit them is not everybody's thinking. And they really need to recognize that. So there was this, um, and I don't know if you saw the story. It was uh, um, a woman whose son was killed in Iraq or Afghanistan. And she was wearing a hat and some clothing yes. like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and she's at a light in New York, I believe it was. And a guy mm-hmm. comes up to her and starts screaming and yelling at her and really just, I mean, he was taller than she was. He was obviously, right, um, right. you know, kind of wearing a backpack. He was younger than she, you know, it was just like not a mismatch. Mm-hmm. And so they stood there and he yelled and someone filmed it. And then within minutes, a couple of young guys, and they were not small, 
came up to him and they were, you, you like yelling at women. And they began to berate him. No physical altercation. They just yelled at him. Right. And he right. ran. I mean, he fled like he literally took to his heels and ran off to get away from them. And the, the look of fear in his eyes was so palpable. And I just wonder, is that I what it's going to take? to be stood up to. Yeah, <laughs> to, to stand up to them, to, to see their true metal. Like they're not really that violent. They're they're good at yelling unless you yell back. Exactly right. They're they're not expecting any response. They think when the crowd is with them, they're they're just motivated by that. But if one person stands up to them, that'll that might be enough. I just encourage people to really consider how much more powerful we we peaceful folks are. And not to be silent. I I don't want to see brawling or people, you know, hitting right. each other. But yeah. I do believe that when one person is screaming at another person who was just walking mm-hmm. or standing, you know, in other words, they weren't provoked. There is no reason for other people to just stand by and watch that to allow it to happen. Right. Yeah, we should be better than that. We should be able to stand up to bullies and stand up on behalf of other people. I mean, it's what we teach mm-hmm. our kids, right? Uh, yeah, grown up are sort of falling down on that. Yeah, no, I absolutely. If nothing else, for the kids, because the the kids right. are watching this and they're learning that it is okay if you get angry at someone to just go up to them and yell them down in the street, and that's not American. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your article that you wrote over at the New York Post. I, I will share it thank in the, the live streams, and and thank you for. You know, I know it can't be easy being in New York and especially the New York Post. I, I actually I, I think you guys do a good job of covering both sides, which is so rare nowadays. You have opinion on both sides. Then you have news on both yeah. sides, which is great. Uh, but it still can't thank be you. easy to kind of write about this. And so thank you for, for what you're doing there. Thanks so much for having me, Stacey. All right. Talk to you again soon, Carol. Carol Markowitz, columnist yep. for the New York Post. Good to talk to you. Um, I I just like I continue to be really I guess it's, this, is a, this is a place where I don't understand what's going on because it would never occur to me to see someone in public that I don't like, someone whose views I dislike, I should say, because I really don't have any personal feelings about these people. And I don't like their views. And so I go over to them and not say, hey, I've seen you on TV before and I think your opinions are garbage, but go over and just start yelling and putting my finger in their face and really you know, trying to intimidate them. It just doesn't occur to me. And maybe it's because my parents taught me to keep my hands and feet to myself and all of my body fluids. I remember my parents saying specifically, you don't yell until spit's coming out of your mouth on other people because my dad was in law enforcement. He'd say, your bodily fluids hitting another person, that's battery. So don't do it. Don't yell. Don't scream. No kicking, punching, poking, fighting, smacking, biting, grabbing, pushing, pulling, punching. What happened to that kind of teaching? What happened to it? Somebody's going to have to do a little something and get hit back is what's going to have to happen. But even then, look at Acosta. He has learned nothing. All right. When we get back, we're going to have your calls, and we're going to be talking about this uh, remainder of topics for the show. Stay right there. What does it take to live an uncommon life? Here's former Super Bowl winning coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment. It was more than 20 years ago that Nike created a huge advertising campaign around three words. Just do it. I have to admit, it was pure genius. 
With that in mind, we probably will never feel ready to go and share the Word of God. But God wants us to just do it. We may be afraid to make a mistake and turn someone off or be embarrassed that we might not have all the right words, experiences, or scripture references. But God is much bigger than all our inadequacies and mistakes. He simply wants our hearts ready and willing to share with others what He has done for us. Tony Dungy, author of the popular Uncommon book series. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. Family is an institution set forth by God, one man and one woman for life, with the outflow being children produced by that union. It's obvious to all that there is an attack on the family in our country, and especially on fathers. Whether it's the cycle of sin that persists in our families or the pressure from our government to exclude men from being intimately involved, the strategic battle is on for the souls of men. Join us in the battle to strengthen fatherhood. UrbanFamilyTalk.com Lonnie Poindexter. Don't ever ask God for patience. <laughs> Just say, oh, Lord, help me to be more patient. No, don't do that. Well, why, Lonnie? Why shouldn't I do that? He'll give it to you, but you're not going to like how you get it. <laughs> well, Lonnie, what do you mean? How do you get patience? Trials and tribulations, my brethren. That's how you get it. Lion Chasers. Weekday mornings at 10 Central on Urban Family Talk. Media Minute with Howard Kurtz. New York Times columnist Jim Rutenberg says media outlets are debating whether to boycott the White House press briefings. This after the Trump team lifted the credentials of CNN correspondent Jim Acosta, who of course kept asking questions that wouldn't give up to the mic. To his credit, Rutenberg says Acosta is a somewhat polarizing figure viewed by some of his press corps colleagues as a showboat. That's an understatement. But here's why it wouldn't work. Rutenberg says reporters could stage a group protest, but then they'd look like they were at war with the president. Or they could do nothing and effectively bow to his authority. In addition, they would look totally self-absorbed, giving up their chance to question the White House press secretary on the public's behalf. They would be pummeled by the president for being part of the opposition camp. And in any event, news organizations are not going to agree to this. There's too many outlets with too many different interests to sign on. So in any event, the show would go on. There's not going to be a boycott, but there aren't many press briefings these days anyway. With your Media Minute, Howie Kurtz, Fox News. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. There is a very real likelihood that Roe versus Wade could be overturned in this Supreme Court, which would leave 25 million women, which is a third of women of reproductive age in this country, without access to reproductive rights. There are 15 cases right now that are just one step away from the Supreme Court. And in the last seven years, there have been 400 laws passed in different states that directly restrict women's access. And I am deeply concerned about this from a public health perspective. So, um, yeah, that was Planned Parenthood President Dr. Dr. Leanna Wen. Dr. Leanna Wen, she says there's a very real likelihood that the Supreme Court could overturn Roe v. Wade. And she points to the 15 cases. There's also really interesting developments uh, in personhood. A couple of states have really gone pretty far to determine that they, they want to be on the record as being on the right side. Now, we've discussed this a few times on the show, and I just want to be perfectly clear that should the Supreme Court find cause to overturn Roe v. Wade, it would simply remand the issue of abortion 
and what is lawful in the arena of killing an unborn baby, the reasons for it, the time frame, the methods that would all go back to individual interpretation by the states. And so you'd be able to say as an American, I don't want to fund, you know, a taxpayer funded abortion or I don't want to support abortion on demand uh, past 24 weeks, or I don't want to support late-term abortion, or I don't want to support abortion, period. And you would see more conservative-leaning states eliminate abortion or eliminate access to abortion uh, surrounding parameters that the people at the local level would set. You would also see some states like California, Illinois, New York, uh, Connecticut. These are states that would have far ranging, like, you know, they, they would push it all the way up to the limit of actual infanticide, which they've already passed that. If you watch the Gosnell documentary, the movie that's out, you know that we, we've long since left behind the idea that abortion is somehow a medical procedure that doesn't harm anybody. The abortions that are going on in this country in these private clinics, unsupervised, unregulated, not, not safety inspected. These are well beyond what, what, Americans were told when they said safe, legal, and rare. Oh, we're so far beyond that. So if you think Gosnell was a one-off, then you're probably also one of those people who when you go somewhere and you see a bug crawling on the wall, you're like, oh, there's just one. Where there's one, there's a thousand. That's the whole idea. So you you don't want to see one bug crawling because you know there are so many more. One Gosnell case of unregulated infanticide and murder then you know there are so many others because two-thirds of the abortions in this country are done in private clinics. Planned Parenthood does one-third of the abortions in this country. I Let that sink into you. Kermit Gosnell is not a one-off. The issue isn't that he's a one-off. The issue is that we don't have enough oversight to actually regulate butchers like him. So we... We have a bit of a problem. Houston, we have a problem. And that problem is that in the Christian community, we have so many people who are post-abortive and so many others who understand that the choice is, you know, you have a, a, a teenage daughter who's pregnant and you don't want people to know that this is the situation that she's in. And that's what propels people to go and send their, you know, you got to have an abortion. And the natural assumption is that this is happening outside of the church. This is happening. um, It's happening to people who are unchurched. They're not Christians. They're, they're whatever it is that you need to think about to say, you know, these are not the ones who are doing this. It's not Christians, but it is, it's Christians, it's Catholics. um, It's evangelicals. It's the people that are, politically minded towards being against abortion, but they're actually having the, they're having the abortions as well. They're participating. And so I've read a few things since I I saw the original study that showed that Christian women comprise a huge percentage of the people who are having abortions. And the only thing that keeps coming to mind is that in a situation where a woman has to make a decision like that, and the woman is deciding based upon on any number of factors. If your public persona is, you know, we don't, we don't want to, we don't want to support abortion, but you have people in your family who've had abortions or you yourself have had an abortion or something like that. 
it becomes an issue of, well, am I condemning myself? Am, am I being a hypocrite saying other people can't do this when I've done it? And that's the, that's the, the binding power of sin like abortion. And I think it's part of the reason why we've been unable to see substantial pushback from the Republican Party on it. Because if, if it's tons of Christian women who are having abortions, it also means there are Republican women who are having abortions. There are families that vote Republican that their daughters have had abortions or the son's girlfriends have had abortions. And so this is a real, it's just like anything else we're dealing with. It impacts so many different people. And the only thing we can do is continue to pray, continue to, to be as, as honest as we can about it and to spend our time doing that hard work which means we we want to we want to reach out we want to support women we want to support women who are coming to the realization that they made a mistake in having an abortion we want to get them into the bible studies that you can find at pregnancy resource center so they can go through the process of healing and we have to find a way to while still saying look sex is for marriage for those who make the decision to have sex outside of marriage and are getting pregnant for them to know that they're still going to be safe in their community, especially their church community, instead of having an abortion, having the baby. And that's something that we're not doing right now. Clearly we're not doing it because we have such a high rate of abortion in the church and in, in those communities. So we have tons of other news and information we're going to get to. I actually a little bit more good news. And if you want to call in and weigh in on the show today, uh, also, I'm going to give you a little recap of my uh, time yesterday. I wasn't here on the air. We had a, a re-air of a, a previous program, and that's because I was in Nashville, Tennessee, interviewing Art Laffer. Art Laffer, the creator of the Laffer Curve. He's a preeminent uh, economist here in America, and he also helped craft the legislation that we have come to know as the tax reform package that was passed a year ago. And he's also helped to pass uh, other information, other bills from going all the way back to Ronald Reagan. He's a bipartisan type of a guy. So we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, the call lines are open at 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. So here's the other good news that I have for you. It's Alabama voters passing an amendment to display the Ten Commandments at public schools. So you've got... The November 6 elections, the residents of Alabama voted overwhelmingly to amend their state constitution to authorize the display of the Ten Commandments on public property, including public schools. Now, I've talked about this a little bit, and we, we are going to get into uh, some discussion on gun control here because that is on the Democrats' agenda for when they take over the House in January. They want to pass some meaningful gun sense, which is, just means law-abiding citizens give up your guns. Well... Alabama's Amendment 1 won with 71.66% of the vote. 28% of voters opposed the measure, so clearly a minority. It added language to the state constitution to authorize the display of the Ten Commandments on public property, including public schools. And the measure actually prohibited the state from using public funds to defend the constitutionality of the amendment. It adds statements about religious rights to the state constitution, including every person shall be at liberty to worship God according to the dictates of his or her own conscience. The civil and political rights, privileges, and capacities of no person shall be diminished or enlarged on account of his or her religious belief. Now, this is necessary because the freedom from fun people are always running around sending letters saying you can't pray, you can't, you can't have the Ten Commandments out. 
And I, I just, what I don't understand is we've seen a market decline in the level of safety in public schools, the level of adherence to like, hey, a teacher told you to do something. I don't have to listen to teachers. I don't have to do what they say. We've seen all of these things go down since we removed the Ten Commandments and the Bible as an option for reading in school. We've never had a theocracy here in this country, but we have had the Bible as one of the primary learning tools, not just because it's the word of God, but because it is we have a biblical based society here in America and knowing the stories of the Bible provides context for so many of the other things that we see going on in our everyday lives. Children who've never read the Bible, they they don't actually even understand the 10 commandments. They don't, they don't know what we're talking about. You won't kill. You don't, you don't lie. You don't covet. These are not things that they've been taught. They're not being taught at home. They're being taught to be good people, whatever that means. Uh, And also hope and change, whatever that means. So seeing Alabama put this back is an acknowledgement that we're waiting too late to get the Bible to people. You know where you can have free access to the Bible and you get a chaplain and everybody's all about you praying? In prison. That's after you've made all your mistakes. That's after you've really basically obliterated your opportunities, destroyed your life. You're in prison. Now all of a sudden it's okay to have a chaplain. It's okay to see the Ten Commandments. It's okay to have Bibles accessible to you. How about if we get the Bibles into the hands of the kids and the Ten Commandments in their eyeballs before they get on the elementary school to prison pipeline or the middle school to prison pipeline? And that's what I don't understand about this. And that brings me to this gun control thing. You've got uh, Don Lemon and Chris Como talking about, you know, how thoughts and prayers don't help with, with gun violence. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about the whole thoughts and prayers thing. I really have a problem with it. Um, the whole characterization of thoughts and prayers, I have, I have a problem with it. But the other thing is that we, we already know that the majority of the gun deaths in this country are due to suicide. And the remaining gun deaths are actually due to uh, people shooting other people in the commission of a crime. And that's primarily concentrated in the black community. So, you know, what, what do we know? We need, we need the Bible back in, into public schools. We need to teach these people not to do these things. They're not getting it at home. All right, let's go to Randy in Missouri. Randy, thank you so much for calling Stacy on the right. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, you know, this issue with abortion has been going on for a long time within the church. Um, just recently, in the last couple of weeks, there was a, uh, a public de- demonstration of... Uh, a bunch of clergy having a prayer vigil at an abortion clinic in Columbus, Ohio, where they uh, equated abortion with some type of religious sacrament. And this type of behavior isn't anything new. There's an organization called the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. They used to operate out of the Methodist building, illegally, by the way, because of tax-exempt status. They, They illegally functioned for... 20-something years uh, out of the Methodist building across the street from the Supreme Court. Um, but, but all the liberal denominations are, are, are associated with it pretty much, and they promoted abortion uh, in, in various many different ways uh, through literature. Um, but this is, this is something that uh, people have been dealing with for a long time. Um, many pro-life uh, counselors have been out at the abortion clinics for decades, mm-hmm. and no, notice church buses pulling up, dropping off clergy or 
clergy members uh, in the cars dropping off uh, uh, yeah. uh, customers for, at the abortion clinic. So it's something, Absolutely. Something we we have, have to, to do something clergy. about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for calling the show, Randy. Um, let's do one more quick call. Uh, let's talk to Zoe in Texas. Zoe, thank you so much for calling the show. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited to be on your show. I'm just elated. I love listening to you and everything that you have to say. Um, you. you. know, I really wanted to put in my two cents on the abortion issue, particularly within the church. And, you know, as someone who has been faced um, with a pregnancy out of wedlock, it's very intimidating really owning up to your own problems and, you know, taking personal responsibility. And I think that the, um, I'm kind of losing my train of thought because I'm so excited to be on the show. Sorry. We have about, we have about 30 seconds left. So before the top of the hour. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, I just wanted to say that really being able to open my heart up to God and, and scripture has only been able to help me polarize my beliefs in the church and definitely polarize me politically. And there's just nothing better than opening the blessing of child into your life. You know, I, it makes me so sad that women are afraid to take responsibility, whether, you know, when it's facing your family or the church. But mm-hmm. it, you know, it's just a tough, it's a judgment call. It that, is. That they, Absolutely. That, that they need to take, that they, that they need to take. They absolutely do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree, Zoe. And thank you so much for calling the show and for listening. We really appreciate you. Uh, I, I'm, I'm of the mindset that we're doing, uh, a lot of people feel like they're doing their best, but there's some disconnect between what we're saying we believe about life and about forgiveness and about sin and about redemption and what we're actually practicing because women are choosing to have abortions instead of carrying the baby to term and dealing with what they might see as a backlash or a loss of status within their community. And I'm speaking specifically of Christian women. Um, liberals are welcomed back into the, the fold when they have an abortion. It's, it's not a problem. Um, but it, clearly, it's a secret that women are keeping in the church. And we've got to figure out a way to talk about it and to support families and to support uh, these situations. Um, all right. If you're leaving us now, God bless and have a nice evening. One News Now. Dot com. News information up next. Stay there.